Tonight's reading is taken from Mark chapters 11 and 12, starting at uh, verse 27 of chapter 11. They arrived again in Jerusalem, and while Jesus was, Jesus was walking in the temple courts, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked, and who gave you authority to do this? Jesus replied, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. John's baptism, was it from heaven or from men? Tell me. They discussed it among themselves and said, if we say from heaven, he will ask, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say from men, they feared the people for everyone held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. Jesus said, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. He then began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a pit for the wine press and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and went away on a journey. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others. Some of them they beat, others they killed. He had one left to send, a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, they will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, this is the heir, come, let's kill him and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read this, this scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this and it is marvellous in our eyes. Then they looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. But they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. Later, they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and said, Teacher, we know you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by men because you pay no attention to who they are. But you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me, he asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought the coin and he asked them, whose portrait is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. Then the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and have children for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first one married and died without leaving any children. The second one married the widow, but he also died leaving no child. It was the same with the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman died too. At the resurrection, whose wife will she be? since the seven were married to her. Jesus replied, Are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God? 
When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Now about the dead rising, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the account of the bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good evening, everyone. This is a very gripping uh, piece that we've had read to us tonight. And so I'd like to keep your Bibles open because we're going to need to look fairly closely at it. Fancy her telling those kids off like that. Who does she think she is? Or who gives you the right to ask for my driving license? Questions like that. Uh, are quite common, aren't they? They're all about authority. Well, that's the issue at the heart of tonight's long reading. It's like bookends. To start with, we've got 11.28, where there's this hostile, aggressive questioning of Jesus, who had just shaken the whole system by kicking the crooks and the traders out of the temple. And at the other end, the other end of the bookend, as it were, Jesus, tired of answering the hostile questions of all three of the main um, groups in, in Judaism, uh, asks them a question, and you'll be looking at that next week. But that question, too, is about authority. Jesus asks, how is it that the clergy of the day say that the coming Messiah is to be the son of David? when David himself, in Psalm 110, calls him his Lord. That completely foxed them. Of course, Jesus is the descendant of David, the Gospels are full of it, but he's also the Lord and God of David. That's what gives him divine authority to teach and act as he did. And his answer to that first angry question is every bit as challenging. The religious leaders of the day had rejected John the Baptist. But when Jesus challenged them about it at the end of chapter 11 and said, where did John get his authority from? Again, they were foxed because they thought that John didn't have any authority at all. But they knew perfectly well that the people thought he was a prophet. So whatever he said, they were going to be in trouble. And Jesus silences them as he aligns his authority with that of John the Baptist. Both come with God's authority. That's the implicit claim here. That's why he says, not I cannot tell you, but I will not tell you by what authority I am doing this stuff. And if they won't accept John's challenge to repent, which was the essence of his message, then of course they won't accept Jesus' challenge to believe, which was the center of his message. Repentance comes before faith. But they weren't having any. Hence the very tense, aggressive uh, approach to Jesus in this reading that we've had tonight. It's all working up to his death which Mark is soon going on to record. 
Very well then. Jesus strongly claims God's authority. How does he use it in this chapter? This chapter that is so full of bitter controversy and attempts to trick him out. Well, there are three short stories here. Three different ways they bring us of Jesus showing his authority. And all three of those are relevant to us. Let's have a look at the first one about the parable of the vineyard in chapter 12. Cast your eye over it. We've just had it read the first dozen verses of chapter 12. Jesus here builds on the passage in Isaiah 5 where God speaks of the trouble that he had gone to in order to make his vineyard, Israel, fruitful. Alas, it was a dead loss. They were a rebellious lot and they wrecked his plan. But Jesus here doesn't pile in to the fruitless people in the nation. He piles into the leaders out there in front of him, attacking him. All down history, they had rejected the prophets. The story is a very plain one, isn't it? That the owner of the vineyard sends a messenger after messenger and they beat up one and they bump off another and so on. And then last of all, he had a son that he loved. And he sent him saying, they will respect my son. But they didn't. They killed the son. And Jesus here not only faces up to his own death, which is so soon to come, but he warns them of the terrible consequences that will follow. The leaders of Israel would all die. The vineyard would be given to others. And it all came true within a generation. 70 AD, well, the leaders were slain. The temple was smashed. The city was captured. And there were 60,000 people strung up on crosses between Jerusalem and Caesarea. And for 1,800 years, no Jews were allowed back into Jerusalem until 1948. What a warning to us not to neglect what God is trying to tell us. If we do, the results may well be as disastrous in our lives as they were in their lives. Very clear warning. The second story brings us a very clear challenge. 13 to 17 is quite subtle. It's worth looking at it carefully. Pharisees and Herodians who loathed each other's guts and could hardly speak civilly to one another, they came and made common cause to trap Jesus. And they said, teacher, we know you're so sincere. You show deference to anyone. You don't regard anybody with partiality. You teach the way of God in accordance with truth. He strokes, they stroke Jesus's feathers, as it were. And then they come out with it. Is it lawful to pay taxes to the emperor or not? Should we pay or should we not pay? 
the question of paying tax to the Roman emperor, the reigning Caesar, Tiberius, was an extremely hot potato. The Herodians just gave in, and they said, yeah, let's cough up. The Pharisees gave in, but they held their nose while they did so. They hated it very much indeed. So to have these two coming together to put the question shows what a hypocritical outfit it was, and Jesus saw through it at once. You see, for one thing, if you pay tribute to Caesar, you recognize Rome's right to rule over Judea as the occupying power. For another thing, it seemed blasphemous. You can see, um, perhaps you can read the, uh, the legend on there. Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus, I'm giving you a translation, chief priest or bridge builder, a pontifex, is somebody who builds a ponds, a bridge. So you see what the claim on these coins are. That not just that this guy runs the show in Rome, but that he is the son of the deified Augustus. And that he is the one who builds the bridges, the supreme pontiff between God and man. And you can just imagine the Jews looking at these coins and saying, divinity for a man? Ability to, bridge a, to build a bridge between God and man? For the emperor, it's blasphemy. Don't touch the filthy coins. Trouble was, if you didn't touch the coins, you'd starve because it was the only legal currency. So how does Jesus handle it? I love the way Jesus doesn't possess a silver denarius. Denarius is quite a bit of money. It was a man's wage for a day, probably 20 quid today. Something like that. You can imagine Jesus feeling in his pockets. Terribly sorry, I haven't got one. Um, would you be kind enough uh, to bring me this denarius you hate so much? And absolutely hating every moment of it, they'd reach into their pocket and they would produce this silver denarius. If you use Caesar's coinage, says Jesus, you are admitting his authority, and therefore you must pay his taxes. Because with Caesar's coins in your pockets, you're shown up as a bunch of hypocrites. And then comes that famous reply, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. That's not only immensely clever, because it completely rebukes, refutes both the Herodians and the, and the Pharisees. But it's incredibly far-reaching as well. Because Jesus distinguishes between the realm of the secular state and the realm of the living God. The coin bears the image of Caesar. There you see it, not very good looking, but very clear. The coin bears Caesar's image. And you bear God's image. You are made in the image of God. That's the point. So give 
the tribute to Caesar and give yourself to God. That's the message. And it was revolutionary because in ancient society, the power and the worship went together. Notice the son of the divine Augustus. And Jesus splits them. There are things that are not Caesar's. Our obedience to the state is what we should normally do. But it is not absolute. Think of what is happening in the Arab world today. It may well be right to rebel against a corrupt state. It may well be right in this country to wear a cross around your neck at work or decline to house active homosexuals in your boarding house and take the consequences. Jesus challenges us to discern between the legitimate claims of the state and the illegitimate claims. It may cost us everything, as it was so soon to cost him. But that's the message. Render to Caesar what is Caesar's. But there are things that are not Caesar's. Render those to God. The coin carries Caesar's image. You carry God's image. Hand that back to God. No wonder it shut them up. They were utterly amazed, we read. And then we get the third lot, the third story. These Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him and asked a question about the resurrection. Again, another bunch of crooks, total hypocrites. So these hypocritical attacks on Jesus continue. The Sadducees were one of the main parties in Judaism at that time. They belonged to the wealthy and sophisticated classes. They uh, exercised most of the power in the state. And now they pile in with this ridiculous story of seven brothers doing the Leverite marriage of the Old Testament, that if, you're, if, if um, one of them dies, another brother um, comes and raises up issues so that the guy's name doesn't disappear. Um, so in turn, these seven people marry the same wretched woman. I bet she was fed up with a lot of them. And then it tells us laconically, last of all, the woman died too. I bet she did. Now, here's the question. Whose will she be in the resurrection? Ha-ha, that should get you, teacher. It was an utterly crooked question because they didn't believe in the resurrection. Nor, for that matter, did they believe in any of the Old Testament apart from the five books of Moses. They were the scriptural, skeptical liberals of their day. And Jesus is very direct with them. They are wrong to deny the resurrection. They are ignorant as well, these sophisticated intellectuals. First, he tells them that life in heaven will be transformed. 
We shall be spiritual beings like the angels. Marriage and childbirth will be past. We will all live in a new dimension, like a tadpole hatching into a frog. Can't imagine what the frog would be like, but that was its future. Or like the caterpillar hatching into the butterfly. Can't know what that new dimension is, but it's very wonderful. That's what heaven will be like. It's just a little glimpse that Jesus gives us of it. So he is shooting them down on their not knowing the power of God. And then he uses the other barrel of his gun to shoot them down on their ignorance of scripture. And again, it's an immensely subtle business because he says, do you remember how God said to Moses, I am the God of Abraham, who died long ago. I am the God of Isaac, who died long ago. I am the God of Jacob, who died long ago. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. You guys are totally wrong. You do not know the power of God, and you do not go know the scriptures. So he gives them this dynamic argument out of the very books that they do accept. The first five books of Moses. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Not I was the God. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And that is the clinching argument for the reality of life after death. It rests on the faithfulness of God. He will not scrap after death those who have in life been precious to him. Everyone has some dread in the face of death. And if you tell me you don't, I shan't believe you. W.B. Yeats put it in one of his snatches of poetry like this, nor dread nor hope attend a dying animal a man awaits his end, dreading and hoping all. But Jesus assures us that we can rest on the faithfulness of God. God will not destroy those on whom he has lavished his love during their lifetime. And shortly after giving that wonderful assurance, Jesus went to his death and rose victorious from the grave as if to prove the truth of what he had just asserted. Now it seems to me that there's something important for us in all those three encounters. The first one is a warning against taking our position or our brains or our looks or our sporting ability or our money Taking these things as our own possessions. Not regarding them as a stewardship which God has lent to us for a while. And the more we concentrate on these things, the more we push to one side the God who has given them to us. But he is the owner of the vineyard. 
And we are only tenants. And even our most enduring qualities will only last 80 years or so. Yet all too easily, if there is success in our lives, if the vineyard does well, so to speak, we push the owner to one side. This story tells us that he will not tolerate it. Destruction lies that way. The second story challenges our loyalties in a complex world. People still worship uh, idols, uh, not um, rulers, at least in the UK, but remember Libya. No, use worship and um, relationships and success, and sex and money, use them as idols, bow down to them, make them your gods. That's a temptation and we compromise all too easily. We find it convenient to render everything to Caesar and not to give to God in whose image we are made the loyalty that is his right. And in particular, we find it so hard to stick our necks out over a matter of principle. That may be a challenge that will face us this week, or this month, or this year. It's sure to. The third story, however, is enormously reassuring. When we are young, we rarely think of death. Death is always something that happens to somebody else. But you've only got to get a teenager run over by a car and it jolts the youth group into awe and amazement and terrible distress. As we get older, death is not such a shock, but it is still a horrible thought. It is the end so far as this life goes. And none of us can pretend that we face it undaunted. But here is Jesus, who knows that his own death is imminent. And he gives the fundamental ground of confidence in life with God after this life is over. He is, he remains, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, though they have long ago died. He is not the God of the dead but of the living. He will not scrap what is precious to him, and we are precious to him. He died to win our allegiance and pay our debts because we were so precious to him. And he will not rubbish us at the end. He is the risen one, and he promises that in the Father's house there are many places to stay. So our attitude in the face of death should show this confidence. I remember uh, when I was uh, rector of St. Aldate's um, going to a funeral. I was riding with the funeral director and uh, he said, Michael, there was an astonishing um, funeral from your church. One of your colleagues took it the other day. It was of a young woman in her thirties who had died and um, there was this bereaved 
young husband left and two small daughters. And the daughters turned out in party frocks and with bows in their hair. Of course they wept, but they knew that death was conquered by the one who said, I am the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And that's why Paul comes out with this purple passage in his letter to the Romans. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will hardship or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it's written, for your sake, we're being killed all the day long. We're accounted as sheep to be slaughtered. But no, in all these things, we're not just conquerors, but more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation shall be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's thank him for that, shall we? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for enduring these very deceptive and hostile questions towards the end of your ministry. We thank you for the warning that you have given us not to hold our gifts and talents as our own, but to hold them as stewards for you. We thank you for the challenge about compromise in our lives and to remember that there are things which do not belong to Caesar. But we bless you for this wonderful last answer that you gave to the Sadducees in their skepticism. That you are the living God. You are the God of those great ones in the past. Not you were their God. And so into your hands, Lord, we commend ourselves tonight in that confidence that you are the living one and that nothing in all creation will be able to separate the believer from his Lord. Hallelujah. Amen. Amen.